Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. I got a lot to cover this week. Last week, I got into a bit of a motor mouth towards the end of our study uh, because I, I got a lot to cover and I didn't get quite all of it squeezed into one into one lesson. So let's go this week. So we were pausing last week to sort of review where we've been in our study on biblical parenting, if you recall what we did. We took a little detour into some practical implications of the study of biblical parenting. We uh, have agreed that the, the goal of raising our sons and daughters, and this is sort of the idea of biblical parenting, our, our goal is to be raising sons and daughters to be our brothers and sisters in Christ, to account for their heart, to properly steward the authority that is given to us, and to shape the character into Christ's. And then we look at three specific ways in which our family life is to be marked differently than how the world would conceive uh, parenting. Um, And we looked at a a couple of different things, uh, three of them in specific. First of all, we looked at, uh, or we observed that we ought to view our family as our closest neighbor. If the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then the second commandment comes after that is to love your neighbor. Well, our closest neighbors are those who are living in our own house, our own children, our wives, our sons, our daughters. And so we can't neglect the love that we have for all of our neighbors, but we recognize that our first neighbors, we are are to be given priority of uh, uh, preference, of the care and the love that we show them is to be given above all the other neighbors that we might have a duty to love as well. So we, we look at prioritizing the neighbors within our own heart, secondly, or within our own home. Secondly, we discussed how the church is our serving ground uh, for our family and for our children. It's not our children's parents. So our church functions as a place where we teach our children how to serve, how to be a part of a church. We're part of the church, not so that our kids will be parented by our elders or youth pastors or whatever it might be, uh, but because the church is where the identifiable people of God gather to worship and also to work. And the practical implications of this we spend a lot of time going through by our regular attendance. Oh, see, you show up late, you show up late, and, and you got to sit by Jenny. That's just how it goes. Yeah. And then you got to get called out by the teacher, which is even worse. I'm so sorry. I, I don't make a practice of making fun of too many people when they show up late, so it's good for the new people to be here early. That's good stuff. Anyhow. Huh? Micah? Micah? I didn't mention Micah's name? Okay, sorry about that. It's clearly his fault for getting here late, I'm sure. This is all recorded now, too. So Ty, Ty is the one who wanted this to be recorded. Just to be, put that on, on the record there, Internet. Anyway, we're part of the church, so not that our kids will be parented by our elders or our youth pastors, but because that's where we are the identifiable people of God. We have our regular attendance here, our regular presence as the gathering of believers so that we can demonstrate to our kids that this is important, first and perhaps foremost, but we also want to help teach our kids that they do not live the Christian life in this sort of isolation. Instead, we're here to guide them, to, to help them um, to, to learn how to live the Christian life, not in isolation, but to serve within the body of believers. But also how, how to do something as simple as worshiping along with our fellow believers. Teaching our children the importance of being inside the church and physically gathered with the body is critical first Because we don't default to that behavior. That's not something we come out of the womb knowing naturally. We don't default to to worshiping uh, as a body of believers, a risen Lord. We we come out worshiping something else, and so we have to be taught. This is not something we're naturally wanting to do, to be subject to the word that is spoken over us, to, uh, to engage in corporate worship, and our little bodies even, as we're little ones. We don't want to be still within worship. We've got to teach how that happens. And part of our duty as being uh, biblical parents is to help teach their minds and to help uh, train their bodies and to also train their hearts to worship God corporately as well as individually. So we work hard to make sure that we are getting to the heart of parenting uh, by even taking active measures to teach them how to physically gather with the body of believers. Uh, you know, I, I was this morning. Um, she came in this morning with her, her notebook that I, I showed out last week. Right, this is one little practical way to do this. Right, get a clipboard, put a piece of paper on it, draw pictures, uh, do little tick marks about how many times the pastor says God in a sermon. You know, anything to engage their little minds to be able to sit still for a long period of time to learn how to do this. 
we have to teach them how to do that so that their hearts can be oriented towards the worship as well. So we take these active measures to teach them how to gather physically as a body of believers, but we're also instructing them by our example and by our words, and this is the most important part of this instruction, is how to have their heart shaped by the local church itself. That's what we're after. And all the things we do to practically train our children to be within the worship service, to be physically present with us, are all um, geared towards teaching their hearts to worship the right thing. We're we're teaching them why their hearts are trying to convince them that it's more fun to play and to run and to make noise than to sit quietly under the instruction of Scripture, Uh, and, and why all those distractions have to be put aside or at least corralled in the right direction of the worship of the one true and living God. And in all of this, all of the practical things that we're trying to do to orient them in the, in the worship service itself, it's to orient their heart, not just their bodies, in worship to our Savior. So the last thing we did was to really speed through our last point. And you know that I speak fast, and even the room beside us knows that I speak fast. I get even faster when I want to cram everything in at the last minute. I didn't really get to rest in that or get through all the stuff that I wanted to get through. So you get to listen to it a second time. I want to really kind of drill down on the last point because we skipped over a bunch more than more than you realize that we skipped over. Um, so let, let's just kind of slow it down as much as I'm capable of actually slowing things down in a, in a class or speaking on anything. But the final point that I wanted to leave you with last week in terms of sort of practical aspects, practical guidance for the way our family life is different from the world around us is that the home is the center of our family life. And we looked at this briefly and quickly, but I had hoped to more closely examine uh, this idea of family life through the lens of Ephesians 5. So we're going to do that this week, but then we're going to turn after that, and I want to give you just a real short uh, meditation, word of encouragement, whatever the right words are, uh, out of Psalm 127. And I want that to be the final encouragement before we go into the rest of the week. I want you to see what the heritage and reward is of biblical parenting. And then I hope next week we'll go back to sort of the book that we've been following with Ted Tripp, look at some uh, uh, aspects of communication. I reserve the right to change that again next week, but that's where I think we're going to next week. But turn with me to Ephesians 5 if you have your copy of Scripture handy with you. We're going to be looking especially at verses 15 through 21. And these verses don't really pop out as like the practical or as the, uh, the popular verses on parenting uh, or even the family life at home. But I think we can understand that parenting and uh, raising of our children, like anything else in the Christian life, is you know like anything else in the Christian life. And the scriptures speak to that. We are to be changed from uh, our old selves to our new selves. And what that means Uh, being made more like Christ has implications across the board, whether it's in your job or whether it's within parenting. Regardless of where we find ourselves, the scriptures simply speak to that, and we are wise to apply those aspects of um, the scriptures to even our parenting. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Here's what it says. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil." Therefore do not be foolish, but understand that what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm just going to tell you up front that I do not think that the uh, being drunk with wine portion really goes to the aspect of parenting. Uh, in fact, I'm going to kind of skip over that portion of it entirely. You can have that own your own debate there, but uh, as I'm reading through that again, it's, it should be obvious that uh, you know the solution to bad parenting is not to get more wine in your system. So just if that's not clear, that we've, we've covered that aspect already. But I want us to see how this applies to our family life with three observations. And I said each of them last week, but let me say them a little bit more slowly this week so that in case you miss them in your notes, you can you know, write them down on your checklist and, and be happy that way. Number one, as, as a family, we ought to at least be together, right? Paul says that we are to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. And that's really the verse that we're going to hang the most time on in this passage of Scripture. But we ought to at least be together as a family. I think that's kind of the default position that uh, because we want to make the best use of our time, we ought to actually spend time together. We don't have much time on this earth. And the days that you have with your children, they may seem long and they may seem like they're dragging by at times. But talk to any 
anybody with gray hair in their beard, and they're going to tell you that that time goes by in an instant. Make the best use of your time. Don't waste the moments that God has given to you. And I, I would think at a minimum that means that we have to at least be together as a family as much as we possibly can. Seize those moments to be together and cultivate moments that you can be together doesn't mean you have to find some expensive place to travel to. You know, I told last week, I think, that uh, we were too poor as, as a, a young family to do anything outside of our home. So we would go to Big Lots and walk around. We couldn't even afford to buy the things at Big Lots. But we would have, like, our little entertainment going to Big Lots and seeing the things we couldn't buy, you know. <laughs> but we were just together, uh, doing things together. Uh, we, we've been to... Uh, dozens, if not, I wrote down here, been to a million local parks. I don't think that's actually right. I don't think we've been to a million parks, but it sure feels like we've been to a million parks. I've pushed kids on swings forever and ever and ever. Uh, we've tossed the ball around. It's amazing how much just a game of catch with your son can open that kid up to saying stuff that you wouldn't have gotten sitting around a table or sitting on a couch somewhere. Uh, we've been on uh, sidelines of countless base, baseball and basketball games, track meets and cross-country meets that take for absolute ever to get through these things. Uh, we've done these things as a family. Friday night, we were going to have to go in three different directions, and then two of the things canceled, and we could all go in one direction. So we all made the drive up to Melissa to sit next to, literally sit next to the dump and the slaughterhouse to watch a baseball game until the, the smells got too overpowering and we had to, had to go somewhere else. But we were there together as a family, doing the things that we could do together as a family. There's something important to that of sitting beside each other. And, you know, I look down the, the row and here's my oldest son reading a Dogman or G-Man book to my, uh, my youngest son. There, there's something that's happening within the family life there. These are short days. We need to make the most of the time together. We've done things together. One of the greatest together moments for us has been simply hiking in the woods. We've made entire vacations of this. Uh, if you can't find woods nearby, then go find a sidewalk in your community and walk it. That's free. You don't have to. You don't even have to pay for that one. You can just walk along the side of the road as safely as you can. But you'll be amazed at how many questions your kids uh, feel free to ask during that time, and the things that you can discuss as you're huffing and puffing through the woods and looking at God's creation and pointing out flowers and waters and a fish and whatever all else, these will pull things out of your kids that you have. The point is to be together for these uh, phenomenal moments. But if you're not doing the things together, you're not cultivating those moments, you know, we're going to be wasting the time. We need to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. And that's the point that I think he's trying to drive at here. Our family togetherness is not meant to merely generate good feelings to strengthen family bonds. Those are really great byproducts of the point of being together. But I think God intends our time to be spent with our children to prepare for and indeed even to combat the, the evil days that are around us. Uh, we could flip this sentence around and start from the end at the beginning here. We could say that since the days are evil or because the days are evil... Look carefully that then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. The purpose, in other words, of our time together, of prioritizing this time with our children, to provide for those moments of hard questions and deep thoughts. The point of all of those things are not the warm fuzzies that come with them, the happy memories that are sort of that nice byproduct of them that last with you for a long time. The entire point of them is to, to prioritize the time with our children that we might protect them from the evil days. And at the same time, we're engaged in that protection of them. We're preparing them for the days that are going to become even more evil into the future that they may have to walk through with or without us. And so our, our young people, our, our children, are being prepared and protected during this time. So think about the, the analogy of uh, shepherding a child's heart. We're talking about sheep, right? So young sheep are the most vulnerable of the entire herd. And if, if you've seen any lambs around, you know that they're small and they're slow and they're tasty to the wolves, right? They're, they're, these are things that are easily picked off by the enemies of sheep. They have no natural defenses, and they have even less natural defenses if, if you're a lamb. And so naturally we give, uh, and the herd will give the most protection to those who cannot fend for themselves. And so we put them inside of the, uh, the pasture, we put them inside of the pen, inside of a circle of rams and ewes, uh, and then that is all guarded also by a shepherd as well. So we, we don't just toss the lambs out into the pasture and say, hey, good luck, don't, you know, there's, a, there's a wolf over there in the woods, but you know, just don't worry about that, you'll be fine. No, we, we protect them deeply inside of all the layers of protection we possibly can. 
And so we account for their physical safety, but this also, as we extend the analogy to our kids, it, it, it accounts for their spiritual safety as well. Our little ones are born with the heart, uh, the same heart as the wolves have. Uh, only by God's divine heart change does that alter it all. And the rehabilitation that follows after that heart surgery requires our effort, the following the commands of God, to teach them all that he has commanded. So we train them in maturity in Christ that uh, though they always need that protection afforded by the good shepherd, they will at least grow to have the ready defenses so that when their adversary is something more than that wolf that's laying uh, in wait in the woods behind them, but is instead the devil walking around as a roaring lion, they might, as 1 Peter 5 reminds us, they can resist him firm in their faith. Well, we are not able to create that firmness in their faith if all we are doing is going our separate directions and making the least use of our time. I think the number one thing we need to be about as we're making the best use of our time is that we are together, to have those moments as a group, as a family, to create this firmness in their faith so that they can then resist the devil as he prowls around them as a roaring lion. So be together. Be together, not just for the memories, although I'm telling you those are sweet and they're wonderful. They're great to have. But be together, for the days are evil, and it takes much time for mom and dad to protect and prepare our lambs to go out into the world around us. Number two, Paul says that because the days are evil, rather than fully participate in those evil days, we should be instead filled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The days are evil, Paul says, and so you need to be filled with the Spirit. This is the positive side of what we just talked about. Uh, we looked at the negative side of what that means, of, of this kind of coming at the, the children. But on the positive side, we have a duty to defend, and we have a duty to teach our children to be prepared for these evil days. We also have the responsibility to positively shape their understanding of what it means to be, in fact, filled with the Spirit. So the goal here, I think, is to help our kids that have become our brothers and sisters in Christ understand how to apply what they believe to the world around them according to what they believe. You know, what, what is it you believe and how does it apply to what you see? It's taking the scriptures that speak on the whole of our lives and applying it to their individual lives in what they are experiencing in the world around them. It is actually answering the question that Satan asked Eve way back in the garden. Remember what he asked? He said, did God really say? Well, the answer and the honest answer to that question, if Eve had been paying attention, and is much more clear to us now, some 4,000 years or so re removed from that question asking, the honest answer is, yes, he did really say. And we can take our copies of the scripture and open it to our kids and say, yes, God really did say about that thing you're struggling to figure out right now. Yes, God really did speak to these issues. Uh, and you can open the scriptures and show it to them. And in this way, we're teaching our children to trust the authority of the scriptures as their guide, as their default resource by which they can navigate the world around them, rather than engaging in any kind of Disney-fied you know, message of trust your heart. Well, we've already understood that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. We ought not to trust the heart. But instead, we ought to, as parents, shepherd that heart. And the way we shepherd that heart is to point them to a greater resource than whatever might be coming out of Pixar. As good as animation is. It's, it's okay. It's still a good thing. Yeah. We've got an animator in the back of the room back there. So, no, it's, it, Those are good things, but this message of trust your heart is the wrong message. We spend the time together so that we can prepare them to be filled with the Spirit and to understand that the default thing that we ought to use is the Scriptures. When they, so when they encounter the fork, that, that proverbial fork in the road, they can, they can trust the Scriptures as the thing, as the mean and the guide for them to choose which way they have to go. Or if it's Yogi Berra, pick it up. That's, that's an old line for Yogi Berra fans. You come to a fork in the road, pick it up. No, the, the Scriptures are designed for us to understand how to navigate the world around us. And, and think of the myriad ways that this is going to apply in the lives of you and your kids. Uh, it could look for uh, things like, you know, how, what to look for in a spouse. Uh, what kind of education that they ought to pursue, either at the young age or the older ages. Uh, questions regarding human sexuality. You can't go anywhere in our society today without encountering that question, no matter how you want to try to avoid it. It's going to be on full blast in front of you wherever you go. 
It's going to answer questions about politics, which is, again, probably at, you know, dialed up to 11 wherever you're at as well. Or maybe that's just in, in my particular vein of, the li- of life. Uh, the problems of pain. Who made the world around us? How do we handle our finances? And then there are many, many more ways that the whole of life is filtered or has to be filtered through the lens of Scripture. And, and your job with your kids as we're shepherding our children's heart is to reorient their heart from worshiping the world's idea of success and, and uh, the, whatever standard of truth and righteousness, if they have any of those standards anymore, whatever those standards are, to reorient them away from that. That's their default setting when they come out of the womb and reorient those hearts to the God that we worship. And so we, we have to spend the time together helping them fill themselves with the Spirit. I, I quickly mentioned last week that this also means that we work hard to discern the will of God together. This becomes a lot more important the older that they get, and they're trying to figure out as they transition from your home to their own home, you know, what's God's will for me in my life? Where am I going to go with my career? Who am I going to marry? What college do I go to? All these things. Well, look, the primary will of God for their lives is also God's chief desire. This is from 1 Timothy 2.4. He desires that all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's kind of like the starting point of the entire thing. And so we prepare for them for that early on so that when they are older, they are walking in that knowledge of the truth and then can uh, ably uh, deploy that in whatever circumstance that they find themselves within. But it goes beyond all of that to the shepherding of the heart of our children according to the will of God as he's revealed it in Scripture. Rather than, than uh, what we may want for them or, or, or worse, what the world wants to instill in them, we want what the Scriptures want for them. So with such short days filled with so much evil that's around us, we have to work hard to, number one, ourselves be filled with the Spirit, but then that we can ensure that our kids are likewise being filled with the Spirit. And this could be as simple as some of the, what I call sort of the blocking and tackling. If it gets too complicated in your mind to run the hard plays on the field, go back to the things that get you five yards, right? So what are the things that we can actually move the ball down the field with? Well, we can engage in personal times of study and prayer. We can engage in uh, the the corporate worship of of the body of believers identifiably gathered as as a body. Those are sort of the the, the small things, personal study, prayer, being at church. If you're you're knocking out those things, you're going to move the ball two or three yards down the field every single time. You're going to get the first down eventually. You can start throwing the long ball with some of the other things later on, but make sure the blocking and tackling is in place because we're going to be training them in those three aspects at the very least to make sure that we have them being filled with the Spirit, or at least that they have the opportunity to be being filled by the Spirit. That's the second thing. The third one, the final thing that we learn, that being filled with the Spirit must also encompass some aspect of worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is what we learned there in Ephesians. Uh, it, it, uh, for the family, I think as we think through how are we as a family different and distinct from the world around us, being a Christian family, a biblical parent, well, I think this means that we ought to worship together. That, that certainly means within the body of believers. That I think that's, that should be obvious by now that I, I mean for us to be gathered as a body of believers along with our family. But I think that means uh, more than, than just that. And, and I said last week that I'm going to spend uh, an entire class period on this later on, maybe even two class periods, talking about family worship. Uh, so we'll save a lot of those thoughts. But if we're serious about shepherding the heart of our children, and I, I think we are, uh, then we have to be serious about using the time that we have to worship together and to learn to worship together. So let's start again from the basic positions here, all right? So we kind of start at the beginning. Our our hearts and the hearts of our children default to worshiping something other than God, as in all of life. We start by uh, worshiping something other than the God that we are supposed to worship. So we don't come out of the womb with our default set on uh, worshiping God. We have a natural desire to worship. We do come out of the womb with that. There is a, a hole inside of us that we will fill with the worship of something, Uh, But our hearts have to be taught to worship Christ, and that is no less true for our children as much as it is true for ourselves. They don't know how to worship God. They have to be taught how to orient their heart to worship God. And and that that requires, yes, all the, the, the basic things, the blocking and tackling I just talked about, about personal study, prayer, and being here with the body of believers. Those are all important aspects. But as a practical means for teaching them, we ought to set aside time in our lives 
to worship as a family. That doesn't require an enormous amount of time, and I don't think there is a formulaic structure here to make sure that you're doing A plus B to equal C. That, that doesn't happen, but it does require a certain amount of intentionality, an intentional amount of time to be set aside. Uh, we can look to Ephesians 5 for the content of our family worship, and it seems pretty obvious. Uh, family worship is going to be marked just with the same things that we see modeled for us here in the in the morning gathering. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want the basics of family worship, they're sort of outlined right there. Sing songs of the faith. This can be as simple as Jesus loves me and Jesus loves the little children, teaching these, these important concepts that are out there. Uh, giving thanks to God for everything, spending time together in prayer, thanking God as a family together for the great things, the many blessings that he's given to us, making the object of all your worship the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that could be uh, praying for one another, identifying needs in our church body to pray for. Uh, it could just be discussing things that they learned in Sunday school that week and unpacking the questions that they have that surround that. But thankfully, we have this God, not only in our church services, but what we uh, but what we also see in the whole of Scripture. So family worship, it doesn't need to be some fancy or, ordeal uh, filled with coloring pages and lesson plans. So, but, but if you want to do that, you know, go for it. You know, if you, if you got the flannel graph, put it up on the wall and, and do a great little study. That'd be awesome. But if you don't know where to start in family worship, let me just suggest that a very easy place to start and one that will just feed you for a long time is pick up the book of the Psalms. Just pick up the Psalms. You've got 143, 146, you've got 140-some-odd anyway Psalms, a lot of Psalms in the book of Psalms, and you can easily go through each one of them, start at verse 1 of Psalm 1, read through the entire Psalm, and then go back and use the Psalm as your guide to pray through that Psalm. There are tremendous truths that come through. The Psalms is filled with theology that are, you're going to have questions that you're going to have to unpack and answer for your kids. You're going to have all kinds of praise being coming out. All this adoration of a great God. This is a very high theology. A high view of God is all present throughout the Psalms. So use the Psalms as your guide and starting point. It's, a very, it's actually very helpful because it's, it's, um, it's approachable from the, the youngest to the oldest. The, the young ones can understand the, the analogies that are there. The oldest ones can understand the theology that's implicit within the entire book. There are great things to be had in reading the book of the Psalms. I, I know I teach, taught another course earlier this year on this very thing, and perhaps I've got too much of a soapbox to stand on on it all, but our family went through this about a year ago, just reading through the Psalms together and then praying back through each verse, it was a tremendous benefit to our entire family. And I encourage you to do the same. I think you'll find the same uh, encouragement as we did from it. And it'll do much to shepherd the heart of, your, of you as well as your children. So families, I think, worship together. And so to wrap up this section before we go on to Psalm 127, I just want you to remember that families dedicated to shepherding the hearts of their children are going to prioritize their time together. They're going to work to be filled with the Spirit, and they're also going to worship together. If we're doing those three things, I think we're going a long ways towards practically working to shepherd the, the hearts of our children. All right, so now we've kind of put a, the bow on the lesson from last week. Let's uh, do our lesson from, from this week. Uh, and this is talking about the heritage and the reward of parenting. Flip over in your scriptures to Psalm 127 and keep that open in front of you. We're going to come back to it by uh, verse by verse a little bit here. But Psalm 127 is a lovely psalm and one that has probably a, a lot of meanings uh, to it all. Um, I mentioned last week that part of the reason I wanted to kind of take a step back from the book itself that we're, we're working our way through and, and uh, kind of back off some of the hard theology that we've been, we've been plowing through is that I know that it can become a bit overwhelming and even a little bit anxiety-filling to be thinking through these issues. Am I doing them right? Have I, have I done this wrong? Is there something I could improve over here? Uh, that can be hard to fall under the, the weight of Scripture and the weight of our responsibility as parents. And I could sort of feel that with, with some of us in the room here, including myself. Uh, and so I wanted to pull back from that. And I don't apologize for the, the serious business that is parenting here. We should take it seriously. As I said in our first week, parenting ain't for sissies. And this is a hard thing for us to, to work through. We should feel the weight of the task as parenting. And that, that's proper for us to feel that. But let's, let's all face it. If you're a parent, you know you need 
he needs some encouragement once in a while. And I, and I don't want you to walk out of this classroom ever feeling completely beat down over the, under the weight of parenting and the, the hefty responsibility that comes from that. But we have to understand, and we should understand, that being a parent is a blessing from Almighty God. And never lose sight of that great, tremendous blessing. I, I, don't, I don't know that there's anything I could tell you that could possibly encourage you more than the knowledge that God has chosen you to be the parent of your children. I, I know that's a real simple thing, but sometimes the most profound and encouraging things are the simplest things, right? God gave me my kids to be my kids. They didn't give me Zach's kids to be my kids. They're great, cute little kids, cuter than my kids in some respects, but they're not my kids. God gave his kids to Zach. God gave Ty's kids to Ty, and so on. The point is that the God of the universe determined that your kids are going to be your kids. Think about that for a second. Your kids were given to you by the God who shaped the universe. Now, I don't know what else I could tell you to give you more confidence that the God of the universe decided you're worth having these kids. Like, I want you to have these kids. Not those kids. I want you to have these kids. And God gave them to you. With all their good, with all their bad, he entrusted them to you. I, I think that's tremendously encouraging. Ultimately, our duty in parenting is only really half that equation. And it's an important half of the equation, I might add. We exercise our responsibilities in parenting in complete and utter dependence upon God. And this is this wonderful sort of weird mixture of our responsibility and God's ability. I don't know how that exactly overlaps. It's sort of like that whole mystery that is sanctification where we have to do something, but really it's up to the Holy Spirit guiding us to make us more like Christ. Right? There's this weird mixture that goes into the good works, but also the passive recipient of righteousness from Christ. There's this weird bond there that has to occur here. But I think that's what Psalm 127 is going to be teaching us. Let's read this together. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So the obvious import of the message of this psalm is that success in anything is predicated upon the reliance upon God. More to the point, uh, we cannot be successful in anything apart from God. We're going to learn that later on in the New Testament where it says, apart from me, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That is no thing. There's nothing that you're capable of doing that is worth doing that is able to be done apart from, from God. Uh, some have speculated this psalm is a reference to the building of the tabernacle. It's David writing to his son Solomon saying, hey, uh, this is my fatherly wisdom that I want to stress upon you as you um, build this temple. It's really important to rely upon God to have the successful building of that structure. That could be true, and perhaps it was. Others have said that it is about the successful defense of the city by a young king. Again, David talking, David the warrior talking to Solomon the king, saying, hey, look, as you prepare uh, to rule, you need to, uh, you need to understand that the king, a wise king governs in reliance upon God. That, that's, that's probably true. It could be helpful. There's also this obvious possibility that is meant to instruct parents to rely upon God and their parenting. All of these are a good explanation for the fit of this psalm, and they could all likely be right. There's, there's a lot of ways to look at this. But whatever the probable fit for the psalm, whether that is David talking to Solomon, the, the warrior king, or Solomon, the builder king, or us as parents, or the house more broadly uh, in terms of generations, whatever those fits may be, whatever those interpretations could be, it's more than a little clear that the main point of the psalm is that nothing can be successful without our dependence upon God. That's the takeaway, right? There's nothing that can be truly successful without our dependence upon God. And I say that intentionally. It's not just that success is keyed on God alone. That should be sort of the obvious fact, because we're in Sunday school after all, and we should be talking about being uh, you know, keyed in on that point. But the whole of our existence and our salvation is owed to that reality, the Psalms, though, this psalm in particular, is directed at human activity. 
Uh, whatever the human finds to do will find success only if exercised in dependence upon God. That is, that human success is this strange mixture of our effort in God's direction. And this doesn't take anything away from God's sovereignty in our parenting any more than our effort in sanctification would take away from God's sovereignty in our salvation and ongoing being made more like him. Still, I think it's very clear from the very first verses that any human success is highly dependent upon God. Look what it says, unless the Lord, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, there have been many wonderful palaces that have been built, many big homes that have been constructed. Cities and nations have been erected by, by the hand and the skillful and the, the heavy labor of man. And though, not, and though skillfully built and courageously defended, they are today all in ruins. There are a couple of major wonders that are still around here, perhaps, but even those are a shadow of their former selves. I think of the Sphinx, as, as beautiful as it is today, it is missing key parts of its, of its you know, appendages and, and whatnot due to the passage of time. All these are wonderfully, laboriously built, skillfully made, but they're still laying in some state of disrepair or even in ruins. Only those things that have, that have had the, Lord's, the Lord as their builder and defender have been the things that have lasted. And there aren't really many of those. Think, think back of the pride of the Tower of Babel. And people thought that they would build a tower to God, that they would actually rise to his level, elevate themselves to the level of God, as it were. And God came down and so confused the builders that not only was the tower never finished, but the builders themselves were scattered across the known universe. That Their language was completely confused. They had to be dispersed across the known universe. Well, similarly, cities have been fortified with seemingly impregnable walls, a brigade of watchmen have stayed awake uh, every hour defending that city, but despite their best efforts during this entire time, fires have broken out, storms have blown in and knocked down walls, disease has spread, and cities are conquered. I mean, th that's just kind of the nature of even the most uh, incredible cities around the globe. Well, in the same ways, it's vanity to think in the same ways that it was vanity to think that those big walls would defend a city, it just put in a watchman on the corner of them would be just fine. Uh, if those buildings would stay built because they had the best architects in the known universe at the time. Well, all of that is vanity, like it is vanity for us as parents. If we think that our labor as parents has any lasting effect without the guiding hand of the Lord. So alone, we can neither build our children nor defend them against the attacks of the enemy. We need the Lord to be able to do that true building and protection. And I would hope that that would greatly encourage you to do all that you might be able to do in the parenting of your own children. Despite all the effort that is required of us in parenting, the success in our parenting is dependent upon the God of the universe. Uh, we ought to instruct our hearts then to depend upon him in our parenting. I've had a couple people, uh, some of you and, and, uh, and others have complimented me at times when they hear me on radio or TV or whatever it is, I've said something. And, and it's very kind when people do that, but I, I'm reminded, and well, someone has told me that I'm very persuasive. I said, well, look, the, the reality is that there's not a mind in this universe that is dumb enough for me to convince of anything. And that's really not even my goal in even this class or anything else. There's not a mind that I am personally capable of, of convincing of anything. I'm going to do my best to do so, but truly I'm not able to actually do that. And that's really not even my purpose. The job that I have and the work that I do is simply to present the truth to them. And whether they choose to be changed by it or agree to it is up to them. And ultimately, it's not even up to them. It's up to the sovereign hand of God teaching them or convincing them to agree with that truth. Well, in the same way as me trying to convince some uh, crazy uh, uh, a politician to agree with my position on an issue, uh, I just hold out the truth and they can agree with it or not. It's still the truth. That doesn't change depending on whether they're convinced by it. In the same way, our job as parents, there's, to coin my own phrase, there's not a kid's mind that is dumb enough for us to be able to convince of anything. or There's not a, a heart soft enough for us to shepherd anything. Our job is simply to present that truth to those kids. Does that make sense? To, to make sure that they understand, here is the truth. You've, you have now heard it. You are without excuse. Ultimately, though, whether they are shaped by that truth is something that is out of my hands and is in the hand of God. That wonderful mixture of our effort and our dependence upon, upon God as well. And Charles Spurgeon says this on Psalm 127. He says, Much 
Much can be done by man. He can both labor and watch, but without the Lord, he has accomplished nothing, and his wakefulness has not warded off evil. Much can be done by man. You can labor as much as you want, but unless the Lord is in the building, unless the Lord is in the protecting, uh, the man man is not warded off evil, and you have accomplished nothing. Perhaps this is uh, this is what causes us greater anxiety, after all, because if we can't control the outcome of our children's lives, even in the small things in life, even in the the, the finite uh, time that we have with them, even in the short range of what we want for them, if we can't control the outcome of that, then maybe. That worry is what's, uh, that, that they won't turn out right is what's controlling and pushing forward the anxiety that we may have as parents. For, folks, if this is where you're at this morning, if you're at this point of, of having this anxiety, uh, your parenting needs, you need to be reminded your parenting is a strange mixture of your faithful effort according to the direction of God in the scriptures and the divine plan of God. Don't leave those two things apart. They're they're, they're together. They have to be together to be effective. That's why I think we read of anxiety and lack of sleep in verse 2 that further illustrates this. It says this, the psalmist does, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, look, we could do all the things that the parenting books tell us to do. We could wake up early. We could stay up late. We could, we could burn the candle at the proverbial both ends, right? Doing all the things that we're supposed to do, hoping to achieve success in parenting somehow, solely by our own dogged effort. Uh, but if we do all that, we're simply eating the bread of anxious toil. We're, we're getting up early. We're, we're going late to rest. We're actually robbing ourselves of, of that sleep, but we're trying to do something better, but we're just simply going to end up eating the bread of anxious toil. We're going to be deprived of sleep and filled with anxiety, trying to do all the things. And that's the way of the world. That's not the way of the Christian. A, a firm reliance upon God and parenting ought to give us a peace that is uncommon and foreign to the world. This is what Spurgeon says about this again. Because the Lord is mainly to be rested in, I love this phrase, all carking care. That's an old phrase that just simply means all distressing. Because the Lord is mainly to be rested in, all carking care, all this distressful care is mere vanity and vexation of spirit. We are bound to be diligent, for this this the Lord blesses. We ought not to be anxious, for that dishonors the Lord. And can never secure his favor. Faith brings calm with it and banishes the disturbers who both by day and by night murder peace. Our job is to be faithful in parenting. If we exercise that faithfully, we ought to have very little anxiety in our parenting. Our our effort is over. We've been faithful in what we're supposed to do. We have expended all that we have in ourselves and all that we have in our faith in, in doing what we're doing as parents. Do we really mean to have anxiety over what God's purposes and plans for our children are? Are we filled with worry that the God who knit their very beings into existence from nothing would somehow flounder and fumble their future? Certainly not. This is the rest I think God speaks of in verse 2. The world may feel like they're not doing enough, and so they get up earlier to do more things. They stay up late to do everything they didn't accomplish. But as Spurgeon says again, those whom the Lord loves are delivered from the fret and fume of life and take a sweet repose upon the bosom of their Lord. He rests them, blesses them while resting, blesses them more in the resting than others in their moiling and toiling. Or as Albert Barnes, the commentator, says, God makes the mind of his people his beloved, calm and tranquil, while the world around is filled with anxiety and restful news, busy, bustling, worried. As a consequence, God's people enjoy undisturbed repose at night, for they leave all with God, and thus he giveth his beloved uh, sleep. So I don't really have much more wisdom to impart to you than uh, if, if you're worried and anxious in your parenting, other than this gentle reminder, God identifies you, mom and dad, as his beloved. That, that's pretty cool. That as a parent, when you're feeling like you are afraid at both ends, that there is no one that cares, and you've been vomited on one more time, and you've been you know, talked back to for the, the umpteenth millionth time, the God of the universe who said, these are your kids, I've destined them for you, he calls you his beloved as a parent and gives you sleep. He gives you rest. In parenting, as in all of the Christian life, God means for you to depend upon him even as you exert all that you have for his sake. Labor all you can. 
all builders find delight in the labor that they employ. They, they employ with some measure of skill that they possess. The labor is not in vain if the outcome of this parenting is left in the divine hands of God alone. That then leads, I think, David to remind us of the blessing that are our children. Children, he says, are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. We're not to regret the having of our children. That's the way of the world, that they view children and receiving children as a burden, some so much so that they want to destroy them before they even come into existence. That's, that's not the, the way of the Christian. We're not to regret the having of children. We're, we're to enjoy this gift, this reward of having children. They don't exist apart from um, uh, his imparting, uh, God's imparting them to us. Despite their constant needs, these kids, they, they need stuff all the time. They, they need our attention. They are still regarded by the God of the universe as both a heritage and a reward to their parents. Long after we are gone, our children will remain pointing backwards to their parents. They are, uh, in many ways, a monument to them and to the, to the parents and, and their faithfulness before the Lord. We got to take a right happiness in the having of them. They are this reward and evidence of his blessing, of God's blessing and favor towards his people. Our children ought to be a delight to us because they have been given to us by the hand of God. These are a gift to us from the good hand of our Savior. But let me also be a little bit circumspect here. I'm not intending to say that our Christian life is somehow tied to the reward of children. The reward of children is not in ratio to our righteousness, meaning the more righteous you are, the more children that you will have. Or even worse, perhaps, uh, the reverse of that. The less righteous you are, the fewer children that you will have. That's, that is not what David is saying in this psalm. And after all, how could you be more righteous than you already are in Christ? You know, you, you couldn't add to your righteousness by having more children. You also couldn't be more unrighteous than what you are apart from Christ. And so there, there's, no, there's no given this. There, there's no reward in the sense of you're more righteous or less righteous, so we'll, God will give you more because you're more righteous, and God will give you fewer because you're less righteous. That doesn't work that way. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's not formulaic. It's not an if this, then that situation. Instead, it, we're just to understand that children are exactly what the psalmist says. They're a reward. They are to be looked at as a blessing, not a curse. They are seen as a gift, not a burden. They are a delight, not a drudgery. These are great things that we have. We could have a hundred of them. They would still all be a reward. We could have one, one and a half, or the American 2.5. And they would still be a delightful gift given to us by the hand of the eternal God of the universe. That is how the Christian life is marked differently from the life of the world. And if you need any evidence for this, pick up Twitter sometime, and you will see exactly how the world views our children. They're expendable. They are a pain in the rear. They're something that we shouldn't like. We need more wine to be able to get through. I mean, like, there are all the things that are out there, right? We, we understand how the world views children, and it's not a good thing. We're to be marked differently. We're supposed to see these little gifts as wonderful blessings from the divine hand of the God of the universe. Here's what Spurgeon says again. Where society is rightly ordered... Children are regarded not as an encumbrance, but as an inheritance. They are received not with regret, but as a reward. So the practical takeaway from that is that we remember that at 3 a.m. when we're cleaning vomit off the sheets, that the one who did the vomiting is a divine blessing to us. That we recall when we say the same thing to our kid that we just said two seconds ago and they forgot, that that child is a divine reward to us. That we regard the, that teen kid that's manifesting those beautiful hearts of arrogance, insolence, antipathy, all the things that come with that, that he's a reward to us and that his heart is to be trained to worship God. These are a heritage, a reward to us, given to us by the hand of God. And let's quickly close with verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks his enemies with his enemies at the gate. Have you considered the purpose of this analogy of arrows? This is, this is kind of cool. Uh, they're a defensive weapon, right? They're meant to protect people from a distance so you don't have to get in close quarters combat. They can actually protect from several yards away. Uh, they're also useful for uh, hunters to secure food. You can shoot a deer from 50 yards away if you're pretty good. Uh, so uh, the parent whose quiver is filled with arrows can be assured of protection and provision in his life. 
but arrows are also unidirectional. That means they go from point A to point B, unless you're some fancy pants that can spin things around something. But in general, arrows go from point A to point B in a straight line, and they're only so accurate as the archer who handles them. So here again, we see the strange mixture of our duty and our dependence upon God. We have the responsibility to train these arrows that are given to us. We're, we're supposed to train them to be straight and to be wielded well. Yet ultimately, their hitting to the target depends upon the skill that God gives these arrows but also at their birth, but also what they are taught during their life. There's a strange mixture, again, of our work and our effort and God's, God's, uh, his skill. Here's what Spurgeon says. A man of war is glad of weapons which may fly where he cannot. Good sons are their father's arrows speeding to hit the mark which their, their sires aim at. Our duty is to take these arrows that we are rewarded with to help them hit their mark. Here's one more important note that you might miss in the admonition to fill one's quiver with them. First, note that the arrows, our arrows, are our, our, our children. They're a reward and blessing from God. We, we didn't make these arrows. We didn't go out and shave down the, the sticks and put the feathers in and put the tip on them. We, we can't make arrows. That, that's God's job, to make these arrows. So I'm going to view with real skepticism, and in fact, I'll label it as legalism, those who would make it an article of their faith to have many, many children. Hey, I'm all for big families. I've got more than the average 2.5, right? I, we are a big family with four kids. There are here, many here that have many more than I have. That's so cool. I love big families. That's one of the greatest means of church growth that ever exists, right? Just having kids. I love kids. I want kids. I love the noise. that You've heard me say i got two favorite sounds in the church. The flipping of pages of scripture and noise of our kids. I love those things. We want to have lots of kids, but the scriptures are not teaching that that is an article of faith to have many, many, many kids. We should regard our children as a blessing, and generally Christians should be pro-child. We should want to have more rather than fewer, but neither our salvation nor our sanctification is dependent upon the number of children that we have. All right, that's just really important. Note also that nothing is said about the size of the quiver itself. The reward of children is not tied to some... Costco-sized quiver. And Spurgeon agrees with me on this point. He says this, A quiver may be small and yet full, and then the blessing is obtained. It's not the size of the quiver that is at issue here. It's the fact that you have a quiver, and there is an arrow or more than one inside of it all. So whether you have one or 21 arrows filling your quiver, those who have been placed there inside that quiver are placed there intentionally by the God of the universe as a blessing to you, and you ought to receive them as such. The point of all of this, as we come to a close, is to remind us that in the hurly-burly of our parenting, that we must labor in the building of the house that is our children. We, we must keep watch upon our charges, guarding against any attack upon them and their soul. Yet we are reminded that our success in parenting is tied to the superintendency of the God who rewarded us in the first place with those kids. That reward is intended for his beloved. Yes, Jesus loves the little children, but he calls his parents, their parents, his beloved. God has chosen you to be the parent of your child, and never forget that. No matter what discouraging display the heart of your child brings to you that day, God has chosen that child to be your, your child. You are to be his parent, her parent. This divine reward, remember, in, in receiving this divine reward, remember that the same God who gives you the reward of children also provides you with uncommon rest. That rest is, yes, physical rest, we, we certainly hope. It is sleep for the sleepless, but it is no less rest than the comforting knowledge that even in our parenting, when we think it is all hopeless and fruitless, God is in control and calls you to dependence upon him. Here's how Spurgeon would help us conclude. He says this, If this must be left with the Lord, let us leave every other thing in the same hands. He will undertake for us and prosper our trustful endeavors, and we shall enjoy a tranquil life and prove ourselves to be our Lord's beloved by the calm and quiet of our spirit. We need not doubt that if God gives us children as a reward, he will also send us the food and clothing which he knows they need. He, he who is the father of a host of spiritual children is unquestionably happy. He can answer all opponents by pointing to souls who have been saved by his means. Converts are emphatically the heritage of the Lord and the reward of the preacher's soul travail. By these, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the city of the church is both built up and watched, and the Lord has the glory of it. That's it for today.